from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca. Find us wherever you get your podcasts as well. And this week on the podcast, I wanted to have a conversation about something that we talked about very briefly on the roundtable last week which was this story that you may have seen CBC London did about a a guy in Old South, and he wanted to replace his porch at his heritage home, uh, mostly because the porch was falling apart. Seems like a good practice to want to replace it because it was a safety hazard. I think that's smart. So he decides that he is going to replace the porch in the porch, and the porch looks great in my estimation. But we have some trouble, and what is this awful thing he did with replacing the porch? Did he take some sort of awful monument and put it at the front of his porch that the neighbors have to look at? No. No, he used vinyl that looks like wood instead of wood. And now we are going to heritage tribunals and all this sort of crazy crap. It feels like a pretty massive waste of time, but this is the sort of thing that happens over and over again when we're talking about heritage designations or whatever it is getting in the way of actual real world stuff. So to talk about that, we are joined by someone who's got some experience with heritage, with history, has been on this podcast before. Robin Schwartz joins us. Hello, Robin. Thank you for this. Hi, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited uh, to put on my historian hat and my heritage hat today yeah. uh, to chat with you about this. So before we do that, uh, I know that you've got some experience with uh, heritage committees in the city of Cambridge, things along those lines. To be very, very clear, you are speaking on behalf of you, Robin. You're not speaking on behalf of anybody else. That is correct. Yeah. So I currently sit um, actually on the city of Kitchener's Heritage yes. Committee. Um, I've been on it since 2021. Yeah. Two, this is my second term. Um, and so once a month, uh, that one of my volunteer activities is that I go to City Hall and um, am a part of those meetings. And um, especially part of when you reached out to ask me about whether or not I would want to be on the show, um, I I started doing this work as a wanting to change heritage because I obviously ha- almost have a PhD in history and really value the sector as someone who loves history. But as you explained in the introduction, I too have seen the problems with heritage my entire life. Um, and then on top of that, um, and we'll get into that a little bit today, um, this year especially and, and coming up uh, over the next four years with the Ford government, Um, some of the changes that are being made to the Heritage Act that um, are both good, but also really scary um, in the interests of the Building Better Homes Faster Act. So first, let's just talk about heritage versus nimbyism. And let me tell you, oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this before, and I've been at planning meetings at City Hall, oftentimes when someone says, oh, I've got heritage concerns about this, really, it's just like very thinly, almost translucently veiled nimbyism. Uh, Am I being harsh there, or would you say that's accurate? No, I think that... So to sort of back up um, in terms of giving folks an understanding of um, how heritage works in Ontario and why this like nimbyism is often how it's represented. Um, So all heritage properties uh, in the province are governed by the Ontario Heritage Act, which basically sets out the regulations to be that each city, each community um, has a heritage committee and that committee, any heritage properties. So properties that are designated of importance, um, either as an individual or as a part of a heritage conservation district in the province, 
is governed by that law. But then on the municipal level, how that actually shows up really depends on who is in the room and what issues are being presented by the community. And so in that way, you're right that, and, and at least like I'm 34 years old, as long as I can remember, heritage has been a way for some people who have certain understandings of their community or property that are not necessarily grounded in history um, because history is a very big idea, uh, will use that regulation, that uh, the Ontario Heritage Act, as a way of slowing progress. Um, and it is very frustrating. And I, I often joke um, that I sit on Heritage Committee as my public service because it can be a really long and boring and arduous process of people saying one thing and then using that as a way of getting the committee to stop some sort of change happening in the community. Yeah, that's uh, definitely something that happens. Uh, again, I've, I've seen it several times. And uh, well, what about the, the heritage of this building? And what about the fact that this person lived here in this year? Uh, yeah, but sometimes the building is falling apart and the historical value is no longer with us. And we are in the midst of a housing crisis. And perhaps we as a society have to adjust to that. So that may mean changing some rules. And I know the province has already changed some rules here, but perhaps not in a way that is... Uh, uh, let's say beneficial. Uh, so, but I think it just means that our idea of, Hey, what do we have to save here needs to perhaps get altered a little bit. Well, and that's honestly initially why I joined Heritage Kitchener mm -hmm. in, um, at the, it was the end of 2020. I applied cause I was like, I might as well sit on a city committee. I had moved here from Lemon, um, in 2019 and redefining what is heritage is a lot of why I enjoy this work because I am a social historian. I look at race, class, gender, um, disability, like, like all of those sort of intersections of people's identities and how they show up in different spaces. And so um, I often think that that perspective is missing from heritage committees. And that's been something um, that I personally in my volunteer work have been pushing um, the rest of the committee and the city of Kitchener staff on because I want heritage to be for everyone. And I want us to be protecting the things that actually do need protecting, but also understanding that heritage and history generally is a process. Um, and I think that that's where when we get into heritage debates, not necessarily, and we, we won't talk about this in detail today, but I'm thinking about some of the statue and like naming questions that have come up in the last four years. Like those are heritage issues, but they are one piece of the broader conversation around who are we as a community, as a society, as a country, whatever level of history you want to look at, and how are we making sure that everyone's heritage is reflected in the stuff that we are investing in saving as a community. And that's really what like heritage has always been. Um, my comprehensive exams for my PhD, my major paper was actually on Canadian cultural history and heritage. And so I did like a deep dive into the theory of all of this stuff, um, decided I didn't like it, switched to women's history. But all that to say, it is an evolution. It is not like, I think that oftentimes folks who have gotten into heritage work and have done it for many years and protected whatever neighborhood um, they, their hearts are in the right place, but they are coming at it from a very stagnant 
everything has to stay the same perspective. And that's not what is being taught in heritage classrooms. Uh, and it's also not how history and heritage are even created. And it often excludes it, particularly like indigenous perspectives, black perspectives, but even within heritage contexts, newer history as history. So the idea that like something built in the 60s or 70s is worth saving is sometimes not something that you can get people on heritage committees to wrap their head around, which like isn't helping, right? Because that is, we're not then looking at the community as a whole and, and really trying to think about how do we engage people with this uh, important part of who we are. So let's talk about the rules as a whole and, and, and how things have changed. I think we can both agree that having uh, the city of London get a have a little bit of a freak out here over wood instead of vinyl or vinyl instead of wood, probably a waste of resources. But when it comes to where the rules are at right now, and like you say, the, the current provincial government has made some alterations. What are the rules now and how do you think they can be changed and how do you think they can be better in your estimation? Yeah, so in that debate um, around wood versus vinyl comes up a lot on heritage and it drives me nuts. Like if I could get heritage committee to never have that conversation again and for us all just to agree that as long as it looks similar, it's okay. Uh, I would save a lot of hours in my life. Um, but anyways, all that to say, in order to stop those things from happening, um, because the Ford government has come in and passed Bill 23, which is the More Homes uh, Built Faster Act, they, as a part of that, have told have amended the Ontario Heritage Act to basically say every municipality in this province has two years to decide which projects like if you want, say, a house to be on the Heritage Registry and it isn't already, that has to happen within the next 24 months. If not, we will not be saving those properties. And so obviously that create that is going to, so from, from my perspective sitting on Heritage Committee, that is going to speed up the process in terms of us making decisions about heritage. Mm -hmm. But the problem with mandating that to city staff without any sort of consultation is that we are not like i know the city of kitchener is working on a an equitable framework for doing that i imagine the city of london heritage planners are as well but there's just a couple people and so when you do things quickly like that um people who have properties that actually should be saved aren't necessarily going to have the time to go through all of the hoops to get heritage designation and other folks will uh like essentially we're quite concerned that there's going to be essentially a mass loss of heritage that could have been saved or should have been saved just because folks don't know this is happening um and so all of the heritage properties um, across the province are currently being reviewed to determine whether, like, what the path forward is for them. Um, and that's the work that heritage committees will be doing until uh, that deadline that that law has put in place. All right. Uh, do you think that we're s sending the work in the right direction, I guess, or are, are we going at the right things here? Because I, I, I look at a lot of these heritage fights and I say, okay, I understand why we want to save some of these buildings, but certainly not necessarily all of them. And 
I think we do have to acknowledge that in the midst of a climate crisis, in the midst of a housing crisis, uh, sometimes there's going to be old buildings in the center of a city that someone wants to replace that a whole lot of people can live in once the replacement's done. And we've got to just do it, you know? So uh, there's, there's, there's a lot to balance here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, and there is. And so, and that's, it's funny because that piece around climate change is something I bring up a lot on heritage when, so oftentimes what will happen, um, and you know, this from talking about that vinyl railing, anytime you want to make changes to a heritage property, you have to submit an application through your heritage mm-hmm. committee. And then we basically hear it and we say, yeah, of course you can replace those vinyl windows or oftentimes like right now, a lot of the applications we get are like changing garage sizes. Um, sometimes it's like we've had ones where it's moving from a single family home into a duplex or whatever that may be. And you're right that that broader context isn't always there depending on like that's really about the city appointing good volunteers. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have volunteers who understand that, like someone like me to say, so I'll, I'll give you a really good example. Um, Frederick Street Public School in London or in um, Kitchener was up because they're in the Frederick um, Heritage District in Kitchener. And so they needed to replace all their wood windows and basically were looking at vinyl. And I asked the right questions to get the architect who was standing in front of us sharing this information and we were asking things to essentially say, we need to replace these wood windows with vinyl so we can put AC in that school. That was not clear from the process because of how the heritage application processes work, that that was part of the conversation but I'm someone who I, I live in a place that doesn't have air conditioning uh, through the pandemic. I was stuck in a one bedroom apartment for like 18 months with no AC. I understand being in Southwestern Ontario, how important that is, especially for kids in learning environments. Mm-hmm. And so like those types of things, I think often with heritage, we are so focused on like the one property and like what's going on with it and what has happened with it. Like, cause there's that history there and not necessarily looking at like its purpose in the broader community saying that bill 23 doesn't do that either it is very much um for the same reasons that i know cities are upset about for example like in water the region them moving the line in terms of agriculture mm-hmm. it is the province giving developers a green light to do whatever they want once we get through this process and in certain cases like most cases that will be okay i i think that there like you said are going to have to be a lot of really hard choices uh, particularly as we head into the climate crisis about what we save and what is important saying that there will be buildings that should have been saved that will not be just because there Mm -hmm. isn't enough time or resources um to keep that heritage alive well one of the examples is you know, we want this, uh, the work on this building made of certain materials. At some point, energy efficiency has to come into the conversation, right? You're talking yes. about these 30 degree days that we're, you know, we're experiencing one right now as we record this. At some point, energy efficiency has to be in the conversation. And the windows that were there in eight. 1894, sorry, that's just, that's not going to fly anymore. We've got to make these windows out of better materials so the air's not seeping out, right? Well, and like... Part of what frustrates me often 
in talking to longtime heritage sector volunteers, and I, I use the word volunteer just because I find the stereotype and is that it's often usually older white women who have really taken a lot of interest in yes. their neighborhoods. And so they think they know everything about that neighborhood because they have done a certain type of history, i.e. learned every single fact about this house or this wood or whatever it is, right? And as a historian, it super bothers me because I'm like, you like, that's not history. Like, like, you know, a bunch of facts, but you don't understand. Like when we teach history at the university level, the fundamental principle that we're teaching first and second years is how can you identify what it is and then explain the significance. And it would be very hard to do that with a lot of these facts that people say, oh, well, this this neighborhood can never have a building over however many feet or however many stories. Like, how is that? Like, that isn't what I'm saying you have to do with history, right? Um, and so it creates this really hard situation where you have people who are super passionate, who have done this work for years, who show up all the time on their volunteer time because they've had the capacity to do that um, with the like economy we've been in for the last 30 years. It's part of why you don't see a lot of young people on heritage committees because we don't have extra time to be involved in these processes because we have two or three jobs um, in order to have the house over our head that the person has had for that many years. But all that to say, it, you're not then getting the voices of different types of heritage in the community. And then what will end up happening is it will be whoever has the time and energy and power, i.e. those women that I just mentioned, the stereotype, or, or, and they will be able to save some of what they want. But they also, because of the reality of what we're saying right here, are going to have a big wake up in the next two years around what is actually worth saving because of the changes in the climate. Um, yeah, it's just I, I feel like I'm rambling here, but it's very much one of those things where I sit at, I sit at these tables um, and I wonder, like, because I can see 50 years into the future and what like I want certain buildings or things to still be around. But I also see how if things change as rapidly as I think they will, that some of those buildings will be lost because of other decisions that we made in terms of how we structure our society. And that's not um, like heritage operates sometimes in a bubble where it's like because we're just focused on the past, it's this disconnect from how the past is impacting the present. Yeah, to me, a lot of it comes down to, okay, if we're not going to want buildings over a certain height in certain neighborhoods, to use the example you did, if that's the case, then we're building on the outskirts of the city. We're building, you know, north of London or we're building, uh, you know, west of Kitchener or whatever it happens to be. And from a climate perspective, from a commute perspective, from a city planning perspective, uh, that's bad. To, to, to sprawl out like that. So building up for people who want to live in a place where they are all on the, 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 the 10th floor, or the 30th floor, depending on where you're doing the up building, uh, that, that's something that's, that's worth doing and needs to happen because the alternative is we sprawl over a bunch more farmland and that, that's fraught with peril too. 
Well, and I think about downtown London, um, and I was just visiting London on the weekend um, and seeing some of the changes and things that have happened uh, just over the last year. Um, and and living through um, the creation of Dundas Place over the last several years in London and like all the construction and traffic, like we need to be, like there was so much outrage around that, but then there continues to be outrage around like building larger high rises around Victoria Park in London, right? And I just don't get how people can't see like a vision because they they complain about oh no one's coming downtown and this and that like all these things and whatever yep. and this is not a london specific conversation these are conversations that are happening in communities across the country and across the world with shifts in how we work and how we live but we're not including heritage as a like community building piece as a part of that it's still very individualistic and tied to individual properties which then allows whether it's individual owners or like NIMBY community groups to because they have the time and energy to do that to basically put together an argument and a package to say no without any context around like okay like London didn't always look like this it did change things happen like like I think about often just going back to my history training around this stuff and the amount of changes that occurred in the 19th century in Paris and the giant, all of the things that we think about as Paris today as like the most important heritage in the world. Uh, it's a world heritage site, like all these things that all changed because of some very specific leadership from the mid 19th century until the early 20th uh, in terms of bulldozing basically medieval Paris to create the giant boulevards that we now have there. And we're seeing some of this shift, like we saw it early in the pandemic in terms of shifting how public space is being used, how heritage space is being used, but we are not seeing the mass change and just understanding of the value of heritage as like place building rather than as a way of protecting power and individual right to property. And it's very, like it's a missed opportunity because by integrating heritage into those other arguments around place and people having access to housing and all of these things, we can build more vibrant communities where people will actually want to live. Yeah, that sounds great to me. <laughs> right? Like I love heritage, to be clear, like I love heritage buildings. I like, that's one of the reasons people constantly, I'm from BC. I was born and raised in Kelowna. The number of times Ontarians come up to me and say, why are you here? Why did you leave? Uh, I'm a history nerd. Do you think there's any heritage in my town? And by that, I mean, like there is heritage, but the heritage that exists in Kelowna, BC, which was founded in 1906, is not the same as the heritage that exists in London, Ontario. And I love the old buildings here. I think they're beautiful. But I also know that the only way that we keep that beauty is by upgrading and retrofitting and keeping the spirit of what it is, but actually letting someone install a vinyl railing because not only is that better with the climate we have, but also it's cheaper. Like, like it just... It requires less maintenance. Exactly. It, like, it lasts longer. Yeah. 
the number of times where I have been sitting there and like someone on heritage is like, well, what about wood? And it's just like, have you done any construction in the last three years? Like, like it, it's just not realistic. And it, like, I know in some heritage spaces, like me saying this would get me like, I'm, I'm basically saying the opposite of what they believe heritage is. But I think that's the problem, right? Is that like my understanding is that value of I love so if for example there is one I can't remember the name of it but there's one older building on Queen Street in downtown Kitchener that was still that was built by the architect that built the original original Kitchener City Hall that no longer exists and is just the tower down in Victoria Park in Kitchener and I've been trying to get them to save that building even though it was sold to a developer and so has the entire committee because it is still working it was used as a music site by the symphony until recently. And so it was this big debate on our committee, basically telling these developers, like, we don't want you to just keep the facade. Like, you need to actually, like, do something to protect and preserve this building. So there are bad players on all sides. Um, but when I, yeah, I think about downtown London and, like, how much heritage is there, so much of it is, like, how do we keep things exactly as it is right yep. now, rather than how do we protect our heritage and communicate our heritage and get people excited about heritage? Protect like, the stuff, those are two different conversations. Protect the stuff that matters, I think, is is, is part of it. And because if, you, if you're going to have a fight over, you know, like the, I, I think of the example of the library on, on, on Dufferin there, and there's a, uh, there was a heritage fight on the library on Dufferin. If we're going to have a, a fight over a building that just like, is, it looks like it's a lost cause. If we're going to fight over that, uh, it's almost like a, a boy who cried wolf type of scenario where if every single time something happens involving heritage, you say, hey, you can't get rid of this or hey, you can't build this because heritage, uh, people are going to tune you out for the ones that really matter. So I think it's a matter of sort of picking and choosing the fights a little bit here, I, I think. I agree, but the process is not designed for that. Right. And that's what's so frustrating, right? Because in theory yes like we should be able to strategically be and and that i think is like in my experience of actually being on the committee what has happened but it takes a lot of time to get there and there's a lot of conversation about wood windows that is very unnecessary <laughs> in order to ensure that like like if for example like I know one of the conversations that we're having around this um, process over the next two years for Bill 23 is like, how do we encourage people who are individual property owners to register their properties if it's like a heritage building we actually do want to save? And I'm sorry, if I owned a house right now, I would not want to register it with heritage because of the number of extra hoops that I'm going to have to jump right. through every time I want to do anything. I couldn't agree more. Like, why, why that, are you causing that headache for yourself? Right? Like, like that's coming from someone, like I just told you, old buildings are my favorite thing. Like, old buildings versus mountains, old buildings every time, Craig. But we can't be in this reality where, like, people, and, and I think it's that, like, this is a broader whole conversation about individualism versus collectivism. But I think that as a society, especially since the 90s, we've really shifted towards that individualized approach to everything. It's like, well, I can't 
you can't build that three-story building because it's going to block my view. And that is just not like it's it's not healthy. It's not how humans are supposed to be functioning in society. Um, we are a collective, like, like we are responsible to each other. We're a species that like we need other people. And so we need like whether it's the London plan or the strategic plan in Waterloo region, like those plans should be guiding these decisions and they're not. Like we have all of these plans and yet what is actually happening every month on these committees does not look that way. Or it takes so long that like we're not having those bigger conversations versus like can Joe change his sidewalk? Like like that is a big part of the work that heritage committees do, which is why everyone thinks they're a joke, even though in theory, like it's important that we value our heritage. Like I, there's no part of me that doesn't believe that. Otherwise I wouldn't be volunteering my time. Um, but I also think that a lot of the process just isn't realistic. Um, and it's very like 1980s. Yeah, I, 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 I feel the same way. It just, it's a matter of the, the process is flawed. Some, and, and part of the, you know, garbage in, garbage out when it comes to inputs as well, right? So uh, mm-hmm. if, 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 if the data coming into the process is flawed and the opinions coming into the process are flawed and the process itself is flawed, like the, the, the results are not going to be good no matter what anyone does. So yeah. it's just a matter of uh, figuring out, you know, what's important and how to go about this because you mentioned, well, I don't want someone to block my view if we build housing here. We've got to build a lot of housing and there's going to be some views that get blocked <laughs> and, and, and just like people have to adjust to that and acknowledge that, hey, this is going to happen and you may not love it, but our alternatives is we continue to see the number of people who are without a place to live grow and that's not what I want. And I don't think anyone should want that. Yeah, well, I don't think it's funny. Um, like, I don't think people, most people really understand how bad it is and how we're like 50 years behind. <laughs> like, they're like, oh, yeah. we just like need to catch up by 10. Like, no, nope. the government pulled out of housing in 1995. But that doesn't mean that that's like the start of this crisis. Like anything like that has at least a 15 to 20 year origin on it before, like with me putting, putting on my historian brain. Um, and I think about like, it's interesting because Craig, I moved to London in 2012 because housing was too expensive where I was from in BC. And I, I mean that sincerely, like I'm from Kelowna. Um, Kelowna is where rich people have gone for the ever, but especially we watched, um, like I grew up there, I graduated high school in 2007, that was the height of the Alberta oil sands. And so, so many people were coming in from Vancouver and Alberta to buy housing in Kelowna. And I basically was watching all of these debates around, do we build higher? Do we do this? And this, the way that rent was just completely unreasonable happening through my undergraduate and so when i was looking at my masters and trying to pick somewhere affordable to start my life as a young adult i thought hmm that london ontario with that western seems pretty affordable and accessible and that they're going to pay me to do my masters that's great uh and the conversations and the debates that were happening in bc 10 years ago are now here 
And it's worse because at least in British Columbia, there are still cities where um, not Vancouver, not Kelowna, but other places that are affordable. Uh, and I don't think that exists in Ontario. I've watched the price of housing skyrocket as it's trickled down the 401. Um, when I like moved to London in 2012, my first apartment was 875 a month for a one bedroom over on Pratfoot Lane. And I bet you that same apartment is $1,800 now. That's a good bet. Uh, so the crisis is not just like, oh, we didn't like housing's expensive now or what have you. Like, like people don't have enough options. They don't have enough places to live. Um, and until we actually prioritize it as a human right in the same way that they did in the post-war era, because all of these families were having kids and everyone needed housing and it was a crisis from 1945 until the 1960s, because we had a giant immigration boom after the Second World War II, until we copy that policy and do similar things, but even more because there we've gone from, I don't remember how many billion people existed in on earth in uh, 1945, but I do know we're at like 8 billion now. So that's part of it. There are just more people and therefore like this crisis is not like the Ontario version of this crisis is that we've just allowed people to park their savings in housing and it was affordable 10 years ago to buy a house in London. It is not anymore. Um, and yeah, her and a heritage home is even more expensive, right? Like if you're looking at getting into the market, um, add heritage property to the list and you're adding a thousands of dollars um to the price of the house yep yep and you know there's headaches once you get in there and uh, sometimes you may want to replace something with a somewhat reasonable uh a uh, reasonable plan, but it turns out you have to do the more expensive plan. So that's the other thing about living in heritage home. So it's uh, it, the, the 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 costs add up fast. Put it that way. Yeah, uh, but but it's the same. So in Kelowna, yeah. they've been having a debate around the lake for my entire life. Right. Like we have a really beautiful lake. My parents have a view of the lake. Uh, one day they may not because if they build all the high rises that they want in downtown, that should be blocked by some buildings and. Um, I can't imagine how my parents probably feel about it, uh, but they're not right. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. just not enough. Um, and it's like, I think of London especially, like, I don't really understand what we're trying, other than like protecting certain buildings in that, like, if there's a really important heritage building, absolutely, we need to protect that. But like for like the heritage district around Victoria Park, like that sort of thing. I don't really get what is being preserved there that we don't have in other parts of the province or city. Like, right. like with heritage, you need to have some type of argument about why this is unique. And I think that that's also been one of the issues is a lot of that work has been contracted out to specific um, like heritage folks in Ontario. And so they have learned how to do this work in a very specific way. And they're now then running up against people like me who are coming in new, young, we're excited, we're interested in doing the work. But I also don't believe any of that stuff because I've seen how both problematic it is, but also can point to historical examples 
of times where heritage had to change for very similar crises uh, to what we're facing now. But this is even bigger because of the climate component. Yeah, uh, and th- there's that. It just uh, the Victoria Park one is an interesting example. Like there, there was a heritage committee here. I forget which one it was, and this was three years ago. So forgive me, but I'm I, I'm just going to say uh, there's a parking lot right next to Centennial Hall, which is owned by London Life, and London Life wanted to develop uh, a couple of uh, apartment towers or uh, condo towers, rather, on there, whatever it is. Uh, uh, but this is building up instead of out on a surface level parking lot. And the heritage folks got mad because it was too close to Woodfield. It's just a matter of like, pick your battles, please, people. Just pick your battles. Like, this is building housing on a surface level parking lot. That's I thought that's what the goal was. I thought that's what we wanted to see. I thought surface level parking lots were bad. And they are. We should be getting out of the surface level parking lot game in downtown cores as much as we can. Uh, so when someone well, wants and, to build and stuff London, on one. It's not yeah. like London is without surface level parking lots. We got lots, lots of those. <laughs> like, lots like, of those. Like I literally, like I was down, I was there on the weekend looking for parking and was like, oh my God, there's so many options, even compared to Kitchener. Like, yep. <laughs> like and- I was just like going around being like, oh, there's that. And and some of them are um, like not city owned, like the ones behind, um, like near, uh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of my favorite bar. That's so upsetting. Give me a cross On street. Central. Uh, Winks. Yes, Winks. That go. is what I'm talking. So Winks has yep. two parking lots, one right behind it and one directly across the street, both of which are owned by private parking companies. And so it's $33 for 15 minutes, I think. Three, like something yeah. absolutely unacceptable. Those are both sitting empty all day. Yeah, because there's other like places there's, to park. Of course, because there's so many parking lots in downtown London. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, and there's street parking and the whole thing. And just like, and, and part of it is, you know, build better transit. So people are more willing to not take their car to the core and all this stuff. Like I, I get that this, this stuff is all layer and there's a lot to it, but it just feels as though the, the fights here are in the wrong place. And that's, that's what I would Yeah. Say. Well, and that was actually, as we were talking, the next thing I was thinking of because, uh, Kitchener versus London transit wise is also a very interesting case study around this stuff. Yeah. And like we know Kitchener said yes to an LRT and London said no. And I don't where are you no. guys at with the bus rapid transit? It's, the the construction is, is is ongoing. And and if you okay. ask anyone who comes in and out of the downtown core, in and out of old East London, they can tell you not only is the construction ongoing, but it's become a significant problem. Okay. Uh but yeah, the, the obviously the LRT construction was no fun in Waterloo Region either. LRT was never like it was discussed here, but it was never really on the table as an election issue here. I remember. It like, was gone. I mean, it was it was bus. I was a part of the um yeah. so when I was working at West as a grad student we would get emails every time that they had like a consultation about the route because I remember that being like a big thing was like is Western gonna let us go over and how do we deal with the bridge um yeah and then I remember the transition to bus rapid transit but what I what I was gonna say is so so that was London's choice and they went with like half of a plan Mm -hmm. um because I remember that vote around cutting the bus rapid transit in half and like getting rid of the west and north route yeah. was the one that killed me inside 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll defend them on the north route just because they hadn't solved the western problem. And uh, my office is right next to the train tracks on Richmond where I see a couple times a week a train just stop there, not even yeah. moving. So I understand why they didn't do the north one. The west one I, I'm still confused by, but uh, either I, way. That train issue just every time. I, yeah. I uh, saw the construction on Adelaide and was like, oh, thank God, because uh, that is one thing I will say in Kitchener. Um, I get stopped by the GO train every so often going up park, um, yeah. but otherwise that doesn't happen regularly. But in terms of differences, so I, like you said earlier, like with Cambridge, so I work in Cambridge, I advocate for Cambridge, Cambridge is in my heart. Uh, and one of our big issues here right now is that, yeah, the LRT does exist. Uh, the city of Cambridge is funding it, as in like all of our taxes here go to the LRT. Yep. We do not have it. Right. And the cost of the second phase of the LRT now is so egregious that they should actually be moving to bus rapid transit. Like if they were being smart and responsible and just like getting better transit out there for people in Cambridge, they would do something in the meantime. And so... It's just interesting how, like, going back to that sort of NIMBY question, I think that, like, here we have Cambridge is very, like, they, the Cambridge mayor famously didn't want the LRT back when it was approved. Um, we still are having issues with Cambridge's regional councillors being against it. But I think for very valid reasons, based on what I just told you in terms of how much access and support we will get as a member of the regional governance. And I think in London, very similarly, it's like a lot of these debates happen in very bad faith from all sides. And there's not like I took transit in London for eight years straight. Like I had a bus pass through the university and most of what I did was take the bus. Um, and usually the people who were have around those tables in terms of rapid transit were not people who were regularly taking the bus every single day to right. live their lives. Um, and that is, again, whether it's heritage, like whatever it is at the city level, we need to actually figure out how to prioritize the folks whose voices are not at the table because they're too busy working, trying to find housing, and trying to keep the roof over their head for their families. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It's it's there's there's a lot of other things going on in the world very clearly. So I I don't know. I, I look back on this and think that, you know, we could have perhaps done it didn't have to go this way. This could have been this could have been smarter. This could have been handled differently, and maybe we, this wouldn't be a tool of nimbyism and things along those lines. But this is the situation we're in. So the best bet now is to try to move forward as best we can. Yeah. Well, and I will to give the um, like obviously I work with them as a volunteer, right. so I'm I'm not speaking on behalf of the city of Kitchener, but I do know that the heritage planning staff um, in working with our committee are trying their best to basically like make lemonade out of lemons because they so any other work that we were doing as a committee um i had been doing some stuff on decolonizing heritage in kitchener because um there's some really big glaring issues here um whether it's victoria park uh, eric kaufman like just like really large heritage issues that uh seem really obvious to me if you follow the truth and reconciliation commission but 
all of that work has had to be pushed aside because we have two years to get through every single property that could possibly be designated or is still like like all that work I was talking about. And so they've been doing a lot. Um, and by that, I mean, like pushing out a lot more work than I think um, they were expecting going into 2022, 2023, um, just in terms of clarifying what the process is going to be and trying to re like make a better process for Heritage and Kitchener. But saying that every single city's planning staff is doing this. So that's also the problem, right? Is that like, depending on who is who your planning staff are at your city level like those priorities are going to be different and and the ford government would say well communities should be allowed to decide for themselves but are we really deciding for ourselves if like no one knows it's happening and it's really just based on who's been hired at a certain time and you hope they create a good process for it i don't know yeah I guess we're going to have to see, and uh, we're going to have to uh, leave it there because uh, I've got things to do, you got place to be and all that yeah. lovely stuff. But, uh, Robin, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having it. I did not know we were going to talk for 45 minutes, but I'm glad we did, so thank you so much yeah, for doing that. Uh, I appreciate it. Anything else that you want to really make sure that we, uh, we talk about before we wrap up the chat here? I think just if there are – like keep an eye on your heritage planning process, and if there are issues or things that come up um, that are interesting to you uh, – like reach out to the committee through the correct channels. So like you can delegate for heritage meetings the same way that folks delegate for other things, whether it's the um, school board or police board, like like work working committee of the city um, like anyone else. And so I think that heritage uh, is better when we have lots of different voices and experiences at the table. And if any homeowners are listening to this right now who are like, I think my house is a heritage building and I really want that, um, reach out to your heritage planning staff locally now because uh, this is your one sort of like big opportunity to have support um, because I know that they're really looking for folks who are interested in designations um, or just like being a part of figuring out what houses and things are going to be saved over the next two years, because we have those 24 months to make those choices. Um, and so that's really the bulk of heritage committee work um, across the province right now. We will uh, leave that there then Robin, thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad that we got the chat. Yeah, me too, Craig. And you know, I'll always go long because uh, that's my ADHD. So I hope <laughs> folks are, I hope folks. Uh, no, this is a fun conversation. I'm glad we went long. Yeah, I'm glad we me went too. long. Robin, thanks um, for this. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you. Uh, that's uh, Robin Schwartz, who, of course, was uh, kind of talked to us about heritage stuff, about planning history and all that fun stuff. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Craig Needles podcast, which you can find at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, and on your very favorite podcast apps. Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.